Hello, welcome and bienvenue, konnichiwa. It's time for the Army Inquisition yet again, episode 179 on Sunday the 11th of April. I'm Armish Philippe. I'm Armish Ben. I'm Armish Matt. And tonight we've got an author, senior lecturer in international history, Dr. Jonathan Coleman, joining us on the podcast. How are you, Jonathan? Very well, thank you. It's good to have you. Um, you tend to specialise in a lot of, sort of modern history, I believe. Yeah, I um, tend to, to, to focus on uh, American history, particularly Cold War history. So, uh, um, you know, American foreign policy and British foreign policy. And uh, one of my modules is is, a, is about the Kennedy administration. So uh, they're, they're my sort of interest, basically, Cold War history. And uh, you were saying in our, in our emails that it's particular particularly relevant at the moment because it's coming up to the 40th anniversary of the Bay of Pigs invasion. Uh, yeah, well, 60th anniversary. 60th, Ian. So, uh, yeah, time, time, time moves on. Uh, absolutely, yeah. So there's still, still loads of interest in JFK. And, uh, you know, he's been, he, he came into office, uh, well, 60 years ago. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, pretty much almost exactly the, uh, the 60th anniversary of the, of the Bay of Pigs uh, disaster. Now, for people of our generation and also this side of the pond, um, the Bay of Pigs invasion is probably not very well known. So maybe we should start there and, and uh, tell us all about it, really. Yeah, um, quite a story, really. But uh, where to start? Um, this is a problem with history, isn't it? Because everything's yeah, yeah. sort of connected. Um, well, if, maybe if we start in 1959, for example, uh, Cuba was taken over by Fidel Castro and his colleagues. And initially, he um, developed a kind of mixed relationship with the United States. But as he moved more towards the Soviet Union, this being the Cold War, uh, the Americans began to take more and more of a dislike to him. And uh, what it what it meant basically was that the President Eisenhower, um, who left office at the beginning of 1961, he developed plans to overthrow Fidel Castro, and JFK inherited those plans and he put them into action in April 1961. And what what, what those plans entailed was a so-called covert or secret. Um, operation secretly sponsored by the United States, whereby uh, a group of Cuban emigres, that is, people who'd left Cuba with Castro coming to power, mm. would uh, launch an assault on Cuba, and it was thought that that would help precipitate Castro's downfall, and for the Americans, they'd be rid of a thorn in their side. So was how was sort of Castro's popularity in Cuba at this time? Because they obviously thought that they could ferment some sort of coup or revolution. Was he a divisive figure at this point in history? I think the Americans miscalculated. One of the things they had in mind was, uh, you know, if this invasion force established a so-called beachhead in Cuba, 
uh, and you know and, and wage guerrilla warfare from the mountains or wherever uh, that would generate um, a rebellion within Cuba to do away with Castro. In reality, Castro is quite a popular figure. There are Gallup polls from that period, uh, or polls of some some type or other, which suggested it was very well, very very well regarded. So the Americans were were too optimistic, I think, in, in expecting that Castro or you know the Cuban people want to overthrow his his government. Yeah, mis- yeah. I mean, the, one of my favourite books is Memoirs of an Economic Hitman by John Perkins, and that goes into a lot of these um, foreign policy interventions of the US mm. in Central and South America. And again, it's these covert means of regi- regime change and, and whatnot. Yeah. Um, what, yeah. How did it actually work, the Bay of Pigs? What was the sort of the mechanics Uh, Well, what happened was that from the time of, well, from 1960, when Eisenhower was still in operation, in in, in office, uh, the United States began training uh, a group of Cuban emigres who, as I said, they'd left Cuba uh, with Castro coming to power. And uh, they were being trained up for a paramilitary operation, which was put into effect in April 1961, when JFK was was in office. And as you say, uh, the the idea was that uh, it will bring about a regime change. And uh, it was classed as a covert operation in the sense that the United States uh, wanted to conceal its role in training and and supporting the emigres. Mm. Um, So the US was involved all the way through, but uh, particularly JFK was very keen to avoid the United States being known for sponsoring the operations because that would obviously very, be very Absol- controversial. Absolutely. Now, now these emigres, were they hand-picked? Were they ideologically opposed to Castro? Or were they just paid like mercenaries or whatever? What was the motivation for these guys to, to take part? Um, there, are, there are different perspectives on them. Uh, Castro himself, he described them as mercenaries, but um, the impression we, we have is that they represent a cross-section of Cuban society. So these were people with a, a range of reasons for opposing Castro. I mean, some, for example, they would have suffered economically from you know, Castro coming to power and nationalising farms and so forth. Others... Uh, they're simply hostile to his politics, his socialism, and how he began to embrace the Soviet Union. So they're quite a diverse bunch, basically. Although Castro, he, he tended to describe them as, um, you know, in class-based terms, as, as you know, rich men and uh, members of the lumpen proletariat and so forth. But as I say, they're, they're quite a diverse uh, bunch. So they had individual reasons for, for wanting mm. to reclaim Cuba as they saw it, and uh, do away with Castro. Was there uh, any evidence for these chaps being promised um, senior role, leadership roles if it was successful? That's an old trick that governments use. Yeah, I'm, I'm not too sure about that, really. Um, I'm, I'm sure they had in mind, you know, securing you know, a, you know, prominent roles in a newly established mm. government of Cuba, but exactly what the Americans uh, said to them, I'm not absolutely sure. But I say they had their own motivations for wanting to do away with Castro. Some simply saw themselves as Cuban patriots. They saw yeah. Castro as being kind of an alien uh, force, not representing the, the Cuban people and so on. 
I suppose it's just sort of difficult because obviously this was sort of uh, classified and I guess you're reliant on, is it sort of fairly recently declassified documents that shed more light on this? Yeah. Um, I mean, most of the documents that were produced around the time, they, they tended, this is a general thing, they tend to become available uh, maybe 30 or so years after the event. So, you know, from the 1990s onwards, people had the opportunity to get a, uh, a full picture of what went on on the American side. So I think most of the, uh, the, 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 you know, the documentary material has been released, but there's probably still a certain amount that pertains to the activities of the CIA, for example, in that era, uh, and perhaps um, about... The, the, the military role of the United States, because as I say, the United States was providing military support and backing for the Cuban emigres. But at this stage, we, we have a very, very clear sense of what went on, certainly on the American side of things. How many um, invaders are we talking about? And, and were they shipped off? Were they sort of in US warships sailing across? Or how did it work? They... Um, there are about 1,400 of them. So if you consider the size of Cuba, it had a population of 7 million or so. So it's pretty, you know, in terms of, of them launching an effective uh, in, invasion, uh, maybe comparable to D-Day in the Second World War, it simply wasn't going to happen. But as I say, the thinking was that you know, the presence of these individuals, they, you know, they'd uh, launched their amphibious ap- operation with the support of the United States, and uh, they'd establish uh, beach you know, a so-called beachhead or lodgment in Cuba. Uh, they'd wage guerrilla warfare. And as I say, the, the population of Cuba will be inspired to overthrow Fidel Castro. So in terms of numbers, they were insignificant, particularly when you remember that uh, uh, the Cuban you know, regime had an army of, I don't know, 200,000 or whatever it was. So they're, they're, they're definitely outnumbered. That's a... That's a big standing army for such a small country, I would think. Uh, yes, I mean, don't, don't quote me on the figures, but the yeah. point is the invaders were substantially outnumbered. I mean, they fought very well in terms of their numbers, uh, and uh, Castro's uh, forces, they, they suffered more casualties proportionally than did the invaders. But, uh, yeah, 1,400 or so uh, men, they were not likely to have any real impact uh, other than... As, as was hoped, you know, the idea that the Cuban people would rise up and, and overthrow Fidel Castro. Did um, Castro have any forewarning? Did he, did he get any intelligence from Russia that this was going to be taking place? I'm not too sure about um, intelligence from, from Russia. Um, there probably was some, but the fact that, uh, you know, this quite substantial number of people were being trained up and they're being trained in Guatemala... Um, with, with American support, it was pretty much an open secret. You know, now, the idea of a, a covert operation is that obviously it remains secret, or at least the sponsors of the operation, you know, their their role does not become apparent. But the larger scale of the operation, the more difficult it is to, uh, you know, mm. to maintain that covert or secret quality of it. And there's no doubt about it, uh, of the, you know, hundreds uh, or more, 
uh, of these Cuban emigres being trained up, you know, eventually 1400, as I say, uh, they were probably uh, well infiltrated by Cuban intelligence. So it was pretty clear to uh, Castro and his colleagues that something was was on the horizon. In fact, there were, there were intimations in uh, in the American press that uh, something was going on. So the main mm-hmm. point is that, that, that Castro was expecting you know, some, some form of action against his country. And, and what's the reason for training him in, in Guatemala? It, would that be because the, it couldn't be seen to be happening on US soil? Absolutely, yeah. So the Americans were keen to conceal their role as far as possible. Uh, Guatemala uh, was an American ally. In fact, in 1954, the United States had uh, been responsible for a successful example of of regime change. So the CIA had been involved there and brought down a certain leader. And they they put in place uh, a government that was more friendly uh, to the United States. So, yeah, the Americans wanted to uh, keep as, as much distance as possible from, you know, the, the attack on Cuba. And so how long did the conflict last? Were they all wiped out? No, uh, it lasts a matter of days. Um, they, they weren't wiped out. I think the, uh, the emigres, they, maybe about 100 or more uh, were killed, but... Uh, the majority of them, they uh, they were they were captured, and in fact, um, you know, they treated treated in uh, you know quite quite poorly. Uh, but they were at the end of 1962. Um, a deal was done to enable their release. So the Americans provided X millions of dollars worth of uh, of medical supplies towards Cuba. So Cuba was short of uh, medical supplies, and. Uh, and they're released, but uh, they, they had a very hard time in, uh, you know, in captivity from you know the time of their capture through to uh, their eventual release. Yeah. So did all this, sorry, happen right at the beginning of the, the Kennedy administration? Was it sort of like one of his first acts in office? Yeah. Um, so Kennedy uh, became president president in January 1961, and uh, it inherited the, the main plans from the Eisenhower administration for this overthrow of Castro, or what was hoped would be the overthrow of Castro. Uh, and uh, yeah, he was very much a novice president at that stage. So the operation took place, of course, in April 1961, still finding his feet. And uh, perhaps he'd, if he'd been a more experienced president, perhaps have more confidence in his abilities, uh, he'd have called it off, not least because, uh, you know, Castro was well aware that uh, something was on the horizon. So it was kind of a devastating blow for JFK's confidence early on in his presidency. Where's the pressure coming from on JFK to go ahead with these plans, do you think? Well, that's a good question. Um there are several sources, and one of the main ones is that uh, the fact that in the election campaign in 1961, uh, the Cold War was obviously a big issue. You know, this was the height of the, you know, the, the Soviet-American Cold War. Uh, Cuba, of course, had you know been drawn into uh, the, the Soviet orbit. And what happened in relation to Cuba was that Kennedy uh, uh, criticised the um, the Eisenhower administration, and remember it was Richard Nixon, vice president, uh, who was running against JFK, and he criticised the administration for uh, allowing Cuba to fall into the hands of Castro and then 
to, to drift into the Soviet orbit. So the point really is that uh, JFK, in a sense, he, he painted himself into a corner on Cuba. So, you know, he, he issued all this uh, rhetoric uh, about the need to deal with Cuba, criticised Eisenhower and Nixon for not doing anything, apparently. And uh, as such, he was placing pressure on himself, in a way, to, to deal with the Cuban issue. So that's one source of pressure. There was um, the other source of pressure was the Central Intelligence Agency. So the uh, late 50s, early 60s was the CIA's peak of influence. It had had succeeded in a number of uh, supposedly covert actions in places like Iran and uh, Guatemala. And uh, JFK had confidence in the CIA and uh, it worked very hard and very successfully to sell JFK on the idea that uh, the plans to to get rid of Castro would succeed. I mean, JFK had his doubts. He had severe doubts about the merit of going ahead. But um, the CIA gave him confidence that that, uh, the, the operation would succeed. I think, was it Eisenhower in his leaving speech, talks about the power of the military-industrial complex. Yes, that's right. Um, yeah, that's quite important. Um, I don't think he was criticising the, the CIA at that stage. Um, he was talking more about uh, perhaps politicians, um, you know, senators, representatives, in areas where the defence industry was well represented. Mm-hmm. He was talking about the lobbying activities of the defence industry, um, but the CIA, you, we can certainly regard that as being part of the military-industrial complex, and of course, its, its image, uh, in part because of its activities in the fifties and sixties, was quite a sinister one. Yeah, I suppose that encompasses the Department for Defence and all the sort of state-run bodies as well. They all have an interest in foreign interventions and uh, and whatnot. But I guess the rationale is, look, we've got this looming threat of communism, and if we don't nip these things in the bud early, uh, we end up with a situation like Cuba, where 50 miles off the coast, we have a... And then that led to the Cuban Missile... Well, it was sort of... The prophecy was fulfilled, wasn't it, with the Cuban Missile Crisis? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the um, the concerns... Uh, you know about the need apparently to get rid of uh, Castro, and this was raised by uh, Robert F. Kennedy in uh, early in 1961. Was that if um, Castro began or continued to develop his ties with the Soviet Union, then potentially Cuba could be turned into a missile base. So that was one concern. So the concern about you know Cuba, as I say, drifting further into uh, uh, the communist orbit. Uh, and as you say, Cuba, you know, not far off uh, the coast of the United States. Historically, Cuba had been under American control. Uh, Latin America, uh, more broadly, was dominated by the United States. And, uh, you know, the fact that uh, a, a, you know, a communist power had suddenly emerged off the doorstep of the United States was a major embarrassment to the American government. I mean, how how did that happen? How did Russia become so influential on the island of Cuba? Well, in large part, the Americans created that opportunity for the Soviet Union. So when Castro came to power in 1959, he had kind of mixed feelings about the United States. 
Um, the United States had mixed feelings about him. Um, but what he did was to take certain measures which upset the Americans. So, for example, uh, he nationalized uh, many American-owned businesses, um, paid, paid compensation, but uh, it was only a nominal amount. Uh, he was responsible for executing many of the supporters of uh, Batista. The, the dictator had been in power for quite a while. And, and this is one thing that uh, the Americans complained about a lot. Um, they were concerned that he never held free elections or he never held popular elections in Cuba. And in a sense, Castro was shooting himself in the foot there because had he held elections, he was very popular <laughs> at one time, uh, he'd probably have been, uh, you know, received a, a mandate from the Cuban people right. and the Americans wouldn't have been able to criticise him so much. Uh, but the Americans, they responded um, to Castro with a, a range of measures which were intended to put pressure on him and show their disapproval. For example, uh, the Eisenhower... Uh, government or administration uh, cancelled American sugar purchases from Cuba. So the Cuban economy was reliant on uh, the export of sugar. And uh, that creates an opportunity for uh, the Soviet Union to set in. So initially the Soviets, they, they engineered a trade deal with Cuba. And as American hostility became more and more apparent, then that provided more of an opening for the Soviet Union. In fact, um, it's notable that Khrushchev and Castro, initially they had mutual uh, reservations, so the Soviets thought that Castro would simply be another uh, a typical uh, Latin American dictator. Um, Castro was concerned that by embracing the Soviet Union, that would compromise Cuban independence. So what we can say is that American pressure on, on Cuba and obvious measures of American hostility, um, they brought the Soviet Union and Cuba together. So the, the American, American policy was counterproductive. Yeah, sort of economic sanctions. And, Absolutely, um, yeah. And sort of Castro's obviously shown some, um, what would the word be? He's shown some uh, signs of socialize, uh, socialist policies and ideologies and and russia have sort of taken advantage of that and yeah pr pretty much so yeah. um on the american side they they well there's some uncertainty about how far um castro was a communist mm. um, certainly a socialist no doubt about that um but he only um kind of embraced communism fully uh, after the bay of pigs Episode. So, so that was a critical episode in pushing Cuba into the communist orbit. So, again, it, it, it was definitely counterproductive from uh, the American point of view. Well, he got the not having free and fair elections part right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. Mm. I mean, how does this sort of link? What What was happening... Because we've got like, is it about six to twelve month gap between Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis? What's sort of happening in the meantime? Well, um, the, we we can draw a line, I think, between the Bay of Pigs episode right. and uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, what the Bay of Pigs demonstrated for the Cubans was that. Um, 
you know, the Americans were, um, you know, they, they'd sponsored this invasion, which hadn't come off. And Castro was very concerned that the United States would um, launch an invasion itself, that is, oh. using American troops to uh, to depose the Castro government. So, so this is one of the factors that... Uh, Push the Soviet Union and uh, Cuba closer together after the Bear Pigs crisis. And in particular, Cuba was thinking about how to strengthen its defenses. Right. And so it looked to the Soviet Union. Uh, the Soviet Union uh, began providing uh, military supplies. Uh, it uh, began stationing troops on Cuba. And what happened in the, in the summer of 1960 was that Castro, sorry, Khrushchev asked Castro about the possibility of placing nuclear weapons on Cuba. So Castro said yes, so he was concerned in part about the need to defend his, his uh, country from another American assault. And, uh, yeah, those missiles were stationed on Cuba, and the result, of course, was the Cuban Missile Crisis in October 1962. So there's definitely a line to be drawn between the Bay of Pigs episode and the Cuban Missile Crisis. Do you think it surprised Castro, put the frighteners on him a bit, the uh, the audacity of the invasion? I think so. Uh, yeah, it created more of a sense of insecurity yeah. uh, on, on Castro's part. And, uh, yeah, definitely the picture is of, you know, the, the more um, the United States intensified its hostility towards Cuba... Uh, the more Cuba embraced the Soviet Union. So American policies were definitely pushing Castro into uh, or in the wrong direction. And uh, again, to, to show that um, American policies were, were counterproductive, uh, after the Bay of Pigs crisis, Castro's um, government, his, his grip on power was cemented because he now had more reason to point to an external enemy trying mm-hmm. to bring down the United, to bring down uh, Cuba. So he kind of entrenched himself in power uh, even more forcefully than he had done previously. Do you think that his personal grip on power was the only thing holding him back from sort of embracing America? having elections and uh, what would what would have, would have been his fears about embracing america in that way you think well although castro um sort of came out if you will as a, as a communist um in you know when, when was it 61 or 62 uh he was also a cuban nationalist and he, he was well aware of the history of cuba he was well aware of how Cuba had been pretty much run by the United States from uh, 1900 or so through to the end of the Batista uh, regime. So he was very much anti-American, and he was, say, a Cuban nationalist, and it just wouldn't work for him to embrace the United States. Um, certainly could have done more to uh, preserve better relations with the United States. It probably would have been in his interest to do so, uh, but he was fundamentally hostile to the U.S. So as I say, he'd seen how the United States had uh, turned Cuba into, uh, well, I mean, JFK described Havana as being an American brothel, for example. Uh, so, so the United States had dominated Cuba and uh, uh, and. Castro greatly resented that, and he resented the United States. He was, he was anti-American from the outset. Yeah, so Cuba had only recently sort of 
had the the grip from the the US relinquished and it was sort of more of a fear of US imperialism in the region and uh, that they would lose their independence again and be too dependent on the United States. Yes, absolutely. So uh, the Americans, you know, they had the so-called Monroe Doctrine and that was the idea that uh, they pretty much had the right to run Latin America, particularly the Caribbean area, uh, as they saw fit. So uh, Castro, yeah, very, very conscious of that. And, uh, yeah, he could have done a bit more to get along with the Americans. Probably would have been wise for him to do that, but uh, he just wasn't inclined to do that at all. Well, there, um, I've heard rumours about this, but have you found any evidence for other... Uh assassination attempts on Castro? Well, um, the Americans did put in place various measures to try to uh, to assassinate him. Um, after the, the Bay of Pigs, um, JFK and RFK, obviously uh, JFK's brother, they had a particular dislike of him. And, uh, yeah, various steps were... Okay, it wasn't, it wasn't his fault, was it? <laughs> No, uh, no, but uh, yeah, there there was um, was a program called Operation Mongoose. So uh, the CIA was involved in trying to um, implement various measures that would uh, weaken the Cuban government. And uh, there were various uh, assassination measures included in Operation Mongoose. So the CIA was uh, involved in assassinations, or at least uh, uh, had plans for various assassinations uh, in different places in, in the world in the 50s and 1960s. And uh, Castro was very much on uh, on the hit list. <laughs> Were there any actual attempts, though? Were attempts gone wrong? Or? Uh, yeah, there, there are all know, sorts of we know crazy of, yeah. ideas about uh, how to do away with Castro. So, so um, it's really fanciful stuff. So there, there was the, the idea that uh, um, the idea of poisoning his wetsuit, for example. So he put on his wetsuit before he went swimming, and uh, this poison would get into his bloodstream, and uh, you know that would kill him. And there are various other. Um, uh, quite far-fetched ideas for, for assassinating Castro. Uh, but, but JFK and uh, Robert F. Kennedy, they're, they're definitely all for the idea of, uh, of doing away with him. They had a very personal uh, dislike of Castro. Ah, uh, right. So Castro, they, they took it personal because, I mean, my initial thought is if you if you take Castro out, someone else is just going to slip into his shoes and you won't be any, you know, you won't be any better off. But it was personal, yeah. you think, between JFK and Castro. Absolutely, yeah. Um, oh. I think Robert F. Kennedy was, he was a driving force in America's policy towards Cuba after the Bay of Pigs. And I think he had a particular hostility towards Castro. But yeah, as you say, um, if you you do away with a foreign leader and your, your role in that assassination becomes known, uh, then it doesn't look very good for you, for your government. And uh, there's also the problem that if Castro was assassinated, uh, then simply one of his associates would would, uh, become the Cuban president and Castro himself would become a martyr. Mm. So so that would simply consolidate the regime. Exactly, yeah, and again push them further into the arms of the the Rushkis. Yes, yeah. I mean, there there were people who uh, who argued that. I mean, there are CIA uh, analyses which... uh, 
you know, they, they know the fact that if Castro died or was re removed, to use the euphemism of the day, uh, then that would simply make him into a martyr and that would in turn entrench the, the, the regime. But uh, let's say uh, Robert F. Kennedy and J.F. Kennedy, uh, sorry, J.F.K., uh, John F. Kennedy, uh, they had a very personal uh, hostility towards Castro. You know, one thing that strikes me about the Bay of Pigs is that it seems like such a, a blunt weapon to use. I would always imagine the USA and the CIA being far more, far more sophisticated and having plants close to the regime and in and around the regime and with mm -hmm. communication methods and trying to destabilise things very subtly over it and playing the long game, you know, over a long period of time and, and, and doing it that way. That's what strikes me about this. It's such a gung-ho sort of thing to try and do. Yeah, yeah, definitely a blunt tool. Um, the, the US had been successful in previous instances in using uh, or sponsoring uh, supposedly covert um, paramilitary operations that I mentioned in Guatemala earlier, uh, and that turned out really well for the US. So there was that um, example for them to look towards. And, uh, yeah, looking back, it does seem like a blunt tool, but uh, the point is that uh, uh, paramilitary operations had been successful for the United States, and the idea was that, uh, you know, a replay of the situation in Guatemala could, uh, you know, take place in relation to Cuba, and, uh, you know, after doing away with Castro through that, uh, that mechanism, then everyone would uh, live happily ever after. And would they, would they have thought that there was time constraints as well at that time and that this threat was looming quite thick and fast and that maybe we don't have time to infiltrate over the long term? We need to do something more precipitously. Yes. Yeah, I'd say so. I think one of JFK's... Uh, concerns was that uh, the more time went by, the the more Castro was able to just you know consolidate his hold on power. So it was really a case of now or never yeah. uh, for the U.S. Uh, really, JFK had it, he could have had an excuse to call it off because, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know the the, the knowledge that uh, a major operation was on the horizon was pretty well known, so perhaps he could have used that as an excuse. But, yeah, there was this general sense that Castro was becoming stronger by the day, and as such, he had to be disposed of uh, sooner rather than later. What was the, the fallout in the US when all this came to light? What was the reaction from, you know, politically, from the general public, etc.? It, it was quite strange. Um, the you know the Cuban emigres and people uh, you know representing the Cuban emigres they 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 condemned JFK for not providing more support. So so one of the reasons it's argued why the operation did not uh, succeed was that JFK he tried to conceal the American hand by reducing the amount of American military support. So uh, he was condemned by uh, so-called Cuban patriots. Within the United States, among the American people in general, it's very strange, but JFK's popularity actually rose after the event. Not what we'd expect, but uh, there was a famous press conference where uh, JFK took responsibility. So he said something to the effect that, uh, uh, you know, defeat is an orphan. I am the responsible uh, officer of 
you know, the American government and so on. So he took personal responsibility for that. So within a week or two, uh, his popularity was at, at an all-time high. And I think he, he made some comment uh, to the fact that, you know, the worse I do, the more popular I become. So it's definitely not, not what, what you'd expect, but JFK took personal responsibility and... Uh, People admired that. I think there's a sense as well that, you know, with him being a new president, then, you know, it's kind of a youthful indiscretion. He's still finding his feet in, in office. And, uh, yeah, it, it boosts his popularity. I think there's a lesson there for modern politicians, that if you yes. just fess up and admit your mistakes and have a bit of humility, it goes a long way. Absolutely, we, yeah. We all know our um, leaders are, are only human. Well, we think most of them are human. <laughs> and, uh, you know, people yeah. make mistakes. Yeah, it, it worked well for JFK, but um, it's very interesting. If you if you look at the uh, the transcript of the, the press conference, um, the, pr- the conference where I said, I'm, I'm responsible for what went on, uh, the press was uh, kept, kept on pushing about the Bay of Pigs operation and uh, it was trying to evade the issue, but finally he got a grip and said, yeah, I'm responsible, mm-hmm. and people like that. But, yeah, if you see the full uh, press conference, he's trying to fog them off and change the subject. <laughs> but, you know, finally he, he got around to admitting, uh, you know, taking responsibility for uh, how things have unfolded. But and as I say, the, the, the American people and people abroad, and also outside the, uh, the communist bloc, uh, seem to admire him for that. Was there um, any UK involvement in in this operation? Uh, no, not extensive. Um, certainly wasn't involved in uh, providing support for the Cuban emigres. In fact, Britain and the United States they did not see entirely eye to eye over Cuba. Uh, one of the concerns in this period was that uh, Britain being hard up, wanted to continue trading with Cuba, and the Americans were putting pressure on uh, on, on their allies to uh, uh, to end trade with, with Cuba. So, you know, the British weren't involved. I don't know how far they were kept informed of what was going on by uh, the American government. The British were more involved in various ways in the missile crisis, but uh, really they were just observers of the, the Bay of Pigs episode. Yeah, because a lot's talked about this special relationship that we have as two countries. And uh, it, it makes you wonder just how um, how, corrupt, how cooperative it is. And, um, I mean, we've spoken to some people who believe that the UK is uh, more powerful in that relationship than maybe some people would believe, you know, when it comes to soft power and ideology mm. and political mm. power. But they know it, no uh, involvement in the Bay of Pigs. No, um, they might have had an indirect involvement in the sense of providing uh, reports about what was going on within Cuba because what happened in 1960 was that the United States ended diplomatic relations with Cuba. (sighs) And and what what that meant was that the Americans did not have any, um, you know, they did not have obviously any officials based in Cuba and they were less able to get a sense of how things were going for Castro. So uh, the British, I think, were very helpful in providing diplomatic uh, reports, maybe intelligence reports, uh, explain the domestic situation within Cuba. I'm not aware of them. Uh, any of those reports, for example, encouraging the you know, the Bay of Pigs um, attack on Cuba, but the British probably did provide some help in respect of providing intelligence data. 
Right, so the British would have had uh, embassies, would they, in Cuba at the time? Absolutely, that's, that's right. right. And uh, that remained the case, of course, uh, during the Cuban uh, missile crisis. So Britain was there with its embassy, its diplomats, maybe an MI6 presence, uh, providing reports to the Americans of the domestic situation within Cuba. And I'm guessing you talked about the trade. I'm guessing there will have been commercial interests and, and word and hearsay through through commercial bodies um, that might have been filtered through security services back to the US as well. If, if we were trading quite, quite yes. actively with Cuba at the time, maybe? Absolutely, yeah. I've never seen any intelligence material that that uh, actually relates to that but it's very plausible to you know to say that uh, you know if britain had um you know people traveling to cuba to do a deal to sell them tractors or whatever it was uh, then it's likely that uh, maybe mi6 and you know british diplomats would take an interest in what you know those businessmen learned dealing with Castro or whoever and and, and and their reports might well end up in intelligence material which in turn might end up in the hands of the United States. So Britain had more kind of eyes and ears, if you will, in Cuba than had the United States. And what about Russia at this point? What was sort of the, the Russian involvement in Cuba at this time? Were they heavily involved? Uh, is this too early? Is it before they were sort of pushed into the arms of Russia? Um, well, I think in the previous year or so, the, the Soviets had sent a trade delegation to Cuba. Um, it's hard to say, really. I, I don't know how many um, you know, Cuban diplomats, for example, were present in in Cuba around the time of the of the, the Bay of Pigs attack. But but certainly the the, the Cuban um, relationship, you know, Cuban-Soviet ties really increased after yeah. the Benedict. Although, you know, the, the, the Russians were working hard to cultivate Castro, despite having certain reservations about him. And, uh, you know, they, 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 they definitely uh, were developing their relationship. But, the, you know, the, the speed of that relationship developing was accelerated by the Bay of Pigs. Is, is it harder to get information on Russian involvement? Because, you know, we talked about... CIA documents being declassified and we have things like freedom of information requests and what off you. Is it more opaque when it comes to trying to figure out what Russian involvement was at that time? Yeah, there's a certain amount of material uh, that is available. So with the end of the Cold War, the Soviet Union uh, made its archive or opened its archives up. Uh, but no, we, we, we know a lot less about Soviet policies than we do about American policies. Um, Russia is quite touchy about releasing sensitive uh, material and uh, the United States, to its credit, tends to be a lot more open than than pretty much most, if not all, other countries across the globe. So we always have a strong picture of the American side of any uh, kind of major international history uh, or foreign policy issue. Um, far less so with countries uh, like the Soviet Union. But there is, I mean, there is material available. Uh, Khrushchev's memoirs, for example, uh, were, were released uh, quite a while ago, and they're pretty useful. Yeah. Okay. Has there been um, anything particularly um, astonishing or sort of uh, particularly interesting that's kind of been declassified in recent years that you've come across? 
The, the main uh, revelations, really, certainly on the Soviet side, are to do with the the Cuban Missile Crisis. So, you know, when when the Cold War ended, um, it was learned that uh, the Soviet Union had like nearly fifty thousand troops in Cuba. And the Americans had uh, they'd estimated that uh, the Soviet Union simply had like four or five thousand troops right. then. So, so what what that meant was that if the United States had invaded Cuba, um, you know, for the Cuban Missile Crisis during the Cuban Missile Crisis, then American troops would have encountered like nearly fifty thousand Soviet mm. troops. So yeah. that's quite a miscalculation. <laughs> it's we just... learned as well that uh, the Soviet Union had tactical nuclear weapons on Cuba. So tactical nuclear weapons are battlefield nuclear weapons. We're all familiar with the um, you know, sort of bombs that destroy cities and countries. Uh, but tactical nuclear weapons, uh, they're less destructive, but very, very destructive uh, compared to uh, conventional weapons. So they're using artillery, for example. And again, what, what it meant was that if the United States invaded Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis, there was a strong possibility of those tactical nuclear weapons being used. Mm-hmm. So uh, the other question I was sort of th- thinking about as well was... Um, I suppose what stopped a, a full-scale invasion of Cuba, you know, at the point of the Bay of Pigs when they knew things were kind of going wrong? Because vaguely I can kind of think uh, back, and was there not sort of U.S. naval ships off the coast and things as part of that? That's right, yeah. So uh, the U.S. Navy was um, off the Cuban coast. It was there to provide support for uh, for the invaders. Um but what JFK was uh, concerned about is that if American troops, you know, they, they got involved, um, I think he said, said something like, oh, it's going to be like hungry, it's going to be an effing slaughter. So it was looking back to the example of uh, Budapest 1956, where the Soviet uh, right, yeah. forces crushed a rebellion in, in, in Hungary. And... Uh, yeah, I think there are arguments which suggest that uh, um, the CIA sponsors of the Bay of Pigs operation anticipated that if things went sour, then JFK would think, well, we've no choice but to send in the Marines. Uh, but that's one line he would not cross. Right, okay. So there's no way you kind of send um, US troops onto Cuban soil. Absolutely, yeah. Right, yeah. okay. Um, and then the other thing as well was, what do you think, I suppose, um, continues or continues to be of interest about Kennedy and his sort of brief? Because it was, it, did, he, did he make it three, through half of his term, was it, I think, or slightly more? Um, yeah, he managed about, um, well, a thousand days or so. Right. It's like two or three uh, years, but uh, yeah, there's still loads of interest in in JFK, as I can kind of testify through running a, yeah. uh, an undergraduate module about uh, his presidency. But he was definitely an important president in in three respects. Um, he was important in domestic politics in the sense that he was the first American president to have to deal head on with the issue of civil rights. Mm-hmm. So. You know, you had various developments such as, you know, freedom rides in 1961 uh, through to, uh, 
you know, the uh, violence in, in Birmingham, Alabama in 63. Uh, he proposed a civil rights bill uh, to submit to Congress. Uh, so we dealt with that issue, which is a, an issue that continues to resurface. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was very important in foreign policy terms. So the Cuban Missile Crisis in particular was um, the most dangerous moment of the, the Cold War. So we noted you know, some of the reasons why it was dangerous, the fact that mm-hmm. uh, the Soviet Union had tactical nuclear weapons there and you know, the nuclear threshold could have been crossed fairly easily, I think. Yeah. Uh, so it's important uh, from that point of view. And it's also important in the sense that he is the first American president uh, to attach a great deal of importance to image. So JFK had a very carefully cultivated public image and, uh, you know, a lot of effort went into constructing that image and maintaining it. So he was definitely an important uh, president. And I think people like, uh, they like to hear about the, the darker side of the, uh, the mm-hmm. K uh, administration. Yeah. So it's all the uh, ladies uh, yeah. wandering in and out of the White House. Well, the, yeah, that's what was good. Just came to my mind then when you're sort of talking about him carefully cultivating his image. Is you know the actual truth behind that when you kind of look behind the curtain, as it will, about sort of all the different women, you know, who are kind of coming and going. And is it not uh, some a sister that was lobotomized? Or something like that. That's right. Yeah. Yes, yeah. so he had a, a a younger sister who had um, she had learning difficulties, and she was, they say, lobotomized. Um, yeah, it's quite a tragic aspect mm. of you know Katie's um, family life. So uh, I think she died pretty young as well. But I say she simply had learning difficulties. But uh, you know, one of the procedures of the day was uh, this very brutal operation yeah. called a lobotomy. Uh, and uh, she suffered because of that. And one of the overlooked aspects of JFK's uh, presidency was uh, how he um, very sympathetic to people with disabilities of one kind or another. And that, that's something that uh, people, they, they tend not to appreciate. So it had, it had a real empathy for people with, with disabilities. Mm-hmm. Was, it, was it not also JFK who, who started the space race or to, uh, the ambition to get a man on the moon? Yes, absolutely. So uh, yeah, it's notable for that. And uh, there's, a, there's a, a Bay of Pigs connection with that because uh, just before the Bay of Pigs attack, the Soviet Union had put the first man in space, Yuri Gagarin, and uh, that was a tremendous propaganda breakthrough for the Soviet Union. So, so Gagarin was uh, you know, a very charismatic uh, individual. So uh, you know, he toured toward Britain, for example, a great unofficial ambassador for, uh, for the, uh, the Soviet Union. And, uh, you know, this being the Cold War, um, putting a man in space was seen as having major military implications, and, and JFK was determined to catch up. And uh, it's no coincidence, in fact, that uh, uh, shortly after the Bay of Pigs um, fiasco had, had come to an end, uh, he announced his commitment to putting a man on the moon. So JFK is very much associated with uh, the space race and the successful uh, Apollo mission in 1969. Even though he uh, he didn't see it come to fruition, which is a bit of a shame. Mm. Yeah, it's, and it's slightly misleading as well because we talk about the space race uh, and the race to the moon. 
but the Soviet Union was not really competing in that particular aspect of the space race. So uh, um, Khrushchev said, well, we've no intention of putting uh, human beings on the moon because, you know, what's the point? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we send machines to do the same thing. You know, they can they can come back with samples and so on. So maybe the term space race is slightly misleading, but, um, yeah, JFK is associated with, uh, you know, obviously the successful uh, moon landing in 1969. It's quite interesting you have that that difference between Khrushchev being the pragmatic what what's in it for us to put a man in space whereas jfk is talking more idealistically about putting a man on the moon it's again what we're going to do or we're going to bring some moon rock back but it's more about idealism and ambition absolutely yeah proving you're the best you know Absolutely. It, it was all down to Cold War propaganda. I mean, JFK, he didn't know much about science or space. Uh, initially, he had the idea of putting a, or sending a man to Mars, and the scientists said, that, that, that's, too, uh, that's too difficult. Let, let's stick with the moon. Uh, but, yeah, he was only concerned with the propaganda advantage of that, and there are documents which, uh, which suggest that, um, you know, documents released from the from the administration, which indicate um, how far the administration saw the space race as being part of the Cold War competition. So there's a concern, really, with um, winning over opinion in the third world, for example, the post-colonial world, parts of Africa and Asia and so on. And it was all about impressing other countries. So it's all about propaganda rather than any practical advantage that might come from uh, placing a man on the moon. This is something that really interests me about the Cold War in, in that it is it's rooted in ideology and propaganda and uh, perception almost yeah. rather than might makes right or a physical confrontation. It's Who's going to be the first to the moon? Who's got the biggest nuclear bomb? Who's got the Tsar bomber? <laughs> Is it, was it called Ben, the Tsar yeah. bomb? Yeah. And yeah, it, it was very much about prestige. Yeah. And so the American point of view is about credibility. So, I mean, for example, when uh, Lyndon Johnson uh, started sending American troops to fight in, in Vietnam in 1965, one of his concerns was, was with American credibility in the Cold War. So it was all about how the United States would look in the eyes of its enemies. You know, would it um, be seen as honouring commitments and standing up for its allies and so on? Uh, and... Yeah, and, and how the United States would look in the eyes of its of its allies as well. So credibility and prestige, they're they are critical components of of the Cold War. John Jonathan, do you think the Cold War ever ended? Well, um it, it ended with the collapse of the Soviet Union in nineteen ninety one. Um I mean there are people who argue that, uh, that there's some kind of Cold War in in place today, given the uh, hostility between Russia and the West. Um, the tensions that are around at the moment, they don't have the same quality uh, that, um, if quality is the right word, uh, that, uh, that were in place really during the Cold War because it had the ideological dimension. So the Cold War was very much an ideological contest. Mm. Um, you know, this, the United States had its vision of how the world should look 
the liberal democratic capitalists, and the Soviet Union, of course, had it had its own uh, vision of how the world should look. So, yeah, the Cold War ended really uh, in an American triumph in nineteen ninety one. The Berlin Wall, yeah. absolutely, yeah, the collapse of the, the Berlin Wall, and uh, you know the winding up of communism uh, from East Europe, and yeah, eventually the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Warsaw Pact themselves. Can you not make the argument that that ideological aspect of the Cold War does have continuity? It's just that maybe the players have changed. Well, the, the, the communism versus capitalism um, element is, is, you know, it's not really there anymore. I mean, what, what we perhaps have is uh, a more traditional geopolitical uh, competition between the United States and, and Western countries and and Russia today. But yeah, the ideological tensions are simply not there. Right. And I guess it's um, it's less immediate. There's not this sort of... I mean, we didn't live through it, but from what we hear from people who did and from news reports is that there was just constant f- impending doom that the world could end you know, in what was yeah. it, was it the three minute warning or the seven minute warning? I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, three three minute warning, but three minute warning. Uh, yeah, the, the the Cold War. I mean, it's described as being the Cold War, but uh, definitely a very frightening time for people because to go back to the JFK era uh, in nineteen sixty one, there were concerns about uh, nuclear war breaking out over Berlin. Uh, And, of course, in 1962, you had the Cuban Missile Crisis and there were various other episodes which, which, um, you know, created uh, very real concerns about the possibility of of nuclear war breaking out. I mean, there is the argument that the Cold War was cold because of the presence of nuclear weapons. Mm. And the argument is that, uh, you know, both sides were too scared of a nuclear war um, to, to, to do anything too dangerous. Uh, but at the same time, the Cold War was definitely very hot in poorer parts of the world. So we're aware of conflicts, for example, in uh, in Korea, uh, for example, uh, Vietnam, uh, the Middle East, and so on. So uh, yeah, yeah, Afghanistan, the Cold War was a, a frightening time. Yeah, it was more sort of um, a global proxy war, it seems, and that, like you mentioned, those conflicts like Korea and Afghanistan and whatever, going right up to you know into the eighties. And that, um, yeah. and that again seems to be something that we maybe have a slight hangover today. When you look at what's happening in Syria and so and so forth, that we tend to because we have su- such powerful militaries and military might and the threat mm. of nuclear weapons that we tend to be, we seem to be seeing these sort of proxy wars being fought. Yeah, um, yeah. Proxy war is a very good way of of understanding the Cold War. A good book came out a few years ago, and it's called the the Cold War's Killing Fields, and it talks about these numerous conflicts in uh, the poorer parts of the world, and it questions the idea that uh, you know the Cold War was a Cold War. Um, so yeah, absolutely, because the um, the superpowers were so frightened of a direct conflict between them. You know, it's argued that that stabilised the situation. It led them to uh, to pull back from the brink on various occasions. Uh, nonetheless, the war was fought in other forms, using proxies in Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, and all over the place. When you think about it, it's quite... I don't know, insensitive is maybe the wrong word, but it's quite 
disrespectful to call it the Cold War. Uh, we only call it the Cold War because it wasn't happening in, in on, on our doorstep, where actually it was happening, like you said, in developing countries across the world. And, you know, we were just lucky that we didn't catch the, you know, get the, the full brunt of it in that sense. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. term Cold War is uh, misleading because... Mm. Millions of people across the world died because of the Cold War in, in conflicts. Um, it's also quite a strange phrase in the sense that you know, people talk about you know, a period of detente, you know, when tensions eased, and that's the idea that the Cold War thawed. But at the same time, people talk about the Cold War becoming a hot war. So it's <laughs> Uh, is, is it good that the Cold War warmed up, or is it a bad thing? So it's, it is quite a strange, uh, a strange idea. A yeah. war. But, but I think it is disrespectful because it, it misleads people. They think, okay, you know, the you know the Soviet Union did not fight directly with the United States. Uh, Britain was not, you know, there was no nuclear uh, war. Nonetheless, it was a war, and it uh, had major effects on people's lives across the world. And not to mention just the the military actions, but also he talked about economic sanctions and such that were done for purposes of the Cold War for ideological reasons that have real effects on real people. And we often uh, not discount, but forget about those sort of consequences of these non-hot wars, if you like. Yes, yeah. Um, so we're talking about Cuba and American uh, measures. So uh, the United States, this is an example, uh, engaged in various measures of economic sabotage. So what they what they did was, um, you know, they, they took various steps to weaken, um, you know, farming, for example, in Cuba. Uh, likewise, they did similar things in in, in North Vietnam and what have you, and. Uh, and those sort of activities, they're not just about weakening a government or bringing down a regime. They cause misery for ordinary people. So yeah. sabotaging sugar supplies and, and so on, mm. uh, it creates real hardship for people. Yeah, like Agent Orange in, in Vietnam. And it's, yeah. it's, the, it's like it reminds me of siege warfare going back thousands of years and, mm. and starving people out. I mean, it's so inhumane. You just hope that stuff like that isn't going on today, but I wouldn't know. But. Mm, mm. Yeah, it's interesting, that, in fact, that uh, in the Bay of Pigs attack, uh, the United States, or sorry, is that the Cuban emigres, which were supplied by the United States, used napalm, which you might be familiar with, really horrible uh, weapon that was used in Vietnam and, and elsewhere. Uh, yeah, Agent Orange uh, used in Vietnam from the Kennedy period onwards and people are living with the consequence of it so agent orange obviously caused severe ecological destruction and still has major effects on people's health Mm. so the cold war uh yeah it was its effects were overwhelmingly negative well we've gone over an hour already jonathan right (laughs) Uh, I've got to ask you one thing before we before yeah. we go though, because we've been joking, talking about JFK so much. Mm-hmm. What's uh, what's your take on his assassination? Because there's been well, so I, many books written yeah. about what happened. It's interesting that um, Lyndon B. Johnson uh, said that uh, Castro was behind it. 
I don't really buy that. I mean, but Johnson's thinking was that, uh, you know, Kennedy had been trying to bump off Castro uh, and Castro, uh, you know, succeeded in bumping off JFK. Uh, I, I don't, I don't buy that really because I don't think there's any hostility from Castro towards JFK uh, as as Person. as an individual, and uh, Cuba didn't really have the the reach to do that sort of thing. So I like to keep things simple, and uh, I go with the theory that Lee Harvey Oswald was a lone assassin, and there was no conspiracy. On that bombshell. (laughs) (laughs) The CIA gets another let off. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, keep things simple. Uh, Well, what's the... uh, I was going to say the Sword of Damocles. No, it's Occam's Razor. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Not the Sword of Damocles. Anyway, (laughs) hey, we'll let you you go, Jonathan. Stay on the line for us while we play ourselves out. It's been fascinating and uh, great talking to you. uh, Well, pleasure to, uh, to speak to you. Excellent. Right. Uh, don't touch that dial we'll be back in a flash right then we're back the dwarf the cripple and the mother of madness that was our chat with Dr Jonathan Coleman going uh, through the Kennedy administration and the pigs and that was really interesting I really enjoyed that one I did yeah me too I'm, uh, I must confess my knowledge of modern history isn't probably up to par, so it's good. It's Like I said, it's one of those sort of areas that we don't learn a lot about. I suppose we tend to focus on the Cuban Missile Crisis, don't we? I seem, I seem to remember that learning about that from school, uh, yeah, but I think did. the Bay of Pigs might have been a paragraph in a yeah, textbook. Yeah, I think that's what I mean, yeah. yeah. And there's just so much going on, isn't there? There's mm. so much depth to it. That's, uh, it's uh, well was worth that, looking into. We've, yeah, we've, I forgot to ask about Ich bin ein Berliner as well. That's, that's the Berlin it. airlift, wasn't it? Was that what it was called? Yeah. Yeah, that was Kennedy's speech that he, uh, yeah. he used that phrase in, didn't he, famously. Mm. Yeah, I don't know, I'm just terrible, I don't know. Anything after the sack of Carthage, I'm useless. I just don't know how about it. <laughs> oh, dear. Anyway. Housekeeping. 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 This is such a crock of... Chest feeding. Shit. This is a value for value podcast. If you find this podcast valuable, please consider returning some value. There's a myriad of ways of doing this. Um, I would normally say subscribe to the YouTube channel. Oh. But fuck YouTube. <laughs> subscribe to the Odyssey channel. Yeah. You... Do you not hear we had our first ban, our first video banned off YouTube? Yeah, so. We so did. Yeah. It was only a matter of time, wasn't it? So, yeah. <laughs> I wonder what the uh, took offence at. I listened uh, a little. I listened back to a little bit of the COVID news, and uh, Matt said that Prince Philip died because of the COVID vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did. Oh, right. Obviously, it was a, it was a joke. <laughs> the YouTube. Algorithms cannot detect humour or sarcasm. Uh, well, I've, 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 appealed, we have appealed? I've appealed, yeah. 
All right, okay, that's okay. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Won't matter. No. The the ban the ban hammer has fallen. I'm just wondering then, are we starting to get into the algorithm zone then? Is it working its way down well, to obviously, our level? Obviously, because we've just had a video banned. That's what I mean. So we must be, you know... Doing something waves. right. Obviously yeah. doing something right, aren't we? Yeah. How dare you contradict the infallible World Health Organization? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, subscribe to the Odyssey channel instead because um, they support free thinkers. And people who can question scientific consensuses and governments and politicians. So, and their algorithms detect sarcasm. Evidently so, because the videos are still up there. Yeah. And we get a little crypto kickback as well. If uh, I believe, if you know, if we get a decent following. So yeah. Lambos all round. So I mean you can subscribe to a YouTube channel, but who knows how long it'll be around for, you know. So, yeah, it's one of those things. I'm not, uh, I, I haven't really thought about what to do, whether to just put the interviews up, just have the interview. That's non-controversial. Yeah. You know, we were talking about demon sperm. I don't think they banned us because <laughs> of, the, of the demon sperm. I'm guessing it was because of the, uh, you know, because we covered COVID news and, you know, read from releases from government bodies and, Scientific but papers. Do you think it, it is the algorithm, or do you think it's been reported? That's the thing. I don't know. It's sort of immaterial, really, isn't it? Mm. The fact is, is that you uh, YouTube is not for creators. It's for selling adverts. Mm. So uh, yeah, it's not the best place to go. It's just uh, you know, it's it, they're going to kill. They're going to be the death of themselves. I'm afraid if they keep this up. People will just find alternatives. It's like the other week I was trying to find that clip of Fauci saying that face masks were useless and that they might make people feel better. Fauci being, you know, Anthony Fauci from the NIH back in the spring last year. You know, it might stop a droplet or two, you know, he said. (laughs) But yeah, people shouldn't be walking around wearing face masks. That was back then. And I couldn't find the clip on YouTube, you know, because this week he was saying that... um, Kids should be wearing face masks when they play together until they've been vaccinated. Okay. You know. So uh, it's not my fault that they're fucking inconsistent. If I bring attention to their inconsistencies, you know, it's unfair to be punished. But, you know, YouTube's a private company. They can do what they want. All right, well, we'll we'll put our videos somewhere else then. Fuck them. Leave us iTunes reviews. <laughs> uh, if anyone... Wow. If anyone ever listens on iTunes, that's another one. That's going as well. People are yes. leaving iTunes in droves. And there is there are rumours about subscription, a, a potential subscription model being implemented for iTunes or Apple Music for podcasts. So you have to pay for the podcast content. Like Spotify are doing. Oh, so again, they're just going to drive people away. What is it, 10, 9%, 8% of people listening to this are currently listening on iTunes? If that, it's dead. It's gone. Podcast Addicts is, is a far better app. You've got Podcasting 2.0 coming up. Mm-hmm. You know, far superior. These these companies, they're, they're going to have to adapt or die. 
Um, hit people in the mouth, word of mouth. Tell people about the podcast. If you find this podcast interesting, valuable, you think you'll learn something, how can you not learn something from that last hour with Dr. Mm. Coleman? Mm. You know, you might know someone who's uh, interested in modern history. Tell them. Say, check this out. I learned tons about the Cold War. I know. How incisive were Matt's questions? Yeah. <laughs> Things like that. Yeah. Your 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 intellect is like a sword. <laughs> that you of Damocles. Use, you use sword of Damocles. I know. I've, I found a mixed metaphor, didn't I? Because I, I I meant to say Occam's razor, and I said sword Occam's of Damocles. Sword. <laughs> yeah, it's the sword of of Occam, isn't it? <laughs> Damocles. Sword of Damocles. <laughs> you know. It's one of t- you know if it's either A or B, just go with Damocles Razor. <laughs> That's the you know the most likely outcome. Yeah. Uh, jingle requests. You can ask for a jingle. Has, someone, has anyone asked for a jingle yet? Um. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um. Good. Someone even provided lyrics. Oh. And a, like a a scene, not a scene. Um. Uh. Uh, not mise en scène. A mise en scène, no. <laughs> <laughs> a, uh, an, oh, an oeuvre. An a oeuvre. <laughs> yeah. Like, um, I don't know. You know, something like... I can't have children with a... Chest feeding. Oh. Something like that, you know. Hmm. You can buy some merch. Go down to the show notes and find the link for the Amish loot chest and you can get your... Because I'm literally a communist. Uh, that's quite apt for this week's episode. Yeah. You're literally a communist. Yeah, definitely. Hoodie, hoodie yeah. Or your current grape T-shirt, whatever. Um, get in contact with us. Guest suggestions is something we don't often highlight, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. if you've heard someone on another podcast or you know someone who has a fascinating story, mm-hmm. email us at thearmistinquisition at gmail.com or get in contact via social media. We don't bite hard. Unless you ask for it. And, you know, I think one of the good things that we do is that we usually don't get guests that are on the circuit, if you like. Yeah. Mm. Trying to. Some of them we do, but we try and mix that up with people who you probably will never hear on another podcast, mm. uh, yeah. which is part of the value, isn't it? Yeah, obviously. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. Um, anything else? Send us links to articles, videos, news clips, things that you think are underreported or particularly interesting. You can send us videos with timestamps, would be useful. Um, you know, I'm not, no disrespect, but I got sent a link to a video today and it was an hour long. And <laughs> I'm, I can't sit through an hour. Send me timestamps with it. Say, oh, that was particularly interesting. And it was a, 46 minutes 50 seconds and then i have a chance because otherwise i just i would spend my life going through videos looking for things to clip out so it is appreciated but that's why you're a producer that's part of your job <laughs> you find something then you produce the clip here it is it's that there 46 minutes bang clip that for me amish phil and play it on the next show and i will do it gladly yeah, don't just tell us you've seen the news. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear, I think that's it. Oh, there might be one other way to become a producer, actually. Toss us a coin. Toss a coin to your witcher. Oh, valley of plenty. Oh, valley of 
I think you're hitting hitting the point, Phil. That uh, I'm a blind man. <sighs> uh, it really bothers me. Uh, 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 mm. Yep. <coughs> Go to the armistinquisition.com. You'll find the PayPal button there if you want to set up for uh, sign up for a one-off don- donation or a monthly. I'm struggling to get my words out right tonight. I don't know, something to me. I think it's my eye. Yeah, you've got a bad eye, haven't you? I'm a blind man. Yeah. In one eye. <laughs> right, shall uh, thank the producers for episode 179. Go for it. Please do. Online chemistry tutor, wondering why it Jesus talks damned ke- that damned came through. Nominos nodge and anonymous. You're so amazing in your love. They are. Yeah. So amazing in their chest feeding love. I've been coming to terms with the fact that I am fucking vegan. Literally. The best mate. I'm a blind man. The dwarf. The carrots. The grape. The Syria. The homophobe. The winds. The misogynist. The tosilizu map. The fucking vegan. The route to liberty. The blind dog faced pony soldier. The asna. The corrupt cunt. The devil in the rock and a half place. The number 11. The sweaty deposit. The big stud. The blind man. The chest feeding. Communist. On the horizon. The cripple and the mother of. Bunny bickering. From like a judgment day and terminating mode like. Yeah, thanks for your support for another week. It means a lot to us. Um, I got a, we got quite a big donation this week. Um, we forgot, I forgot to discuss in the interim whether we should award executive producer status. Ooh. In fact, uh, yeah, no, fuck him. <laughs> <laughs> That's a joke. It's a joke. I'm joking. COVID-19 news. If you let it rip, they would get infected very rapidly and soon be filling up your hospitals and unfortunately your morgues. Vaccination is going to be, in the end, your route to liberty. I wish we could vaccinate against stupidity. Uh, In the same ballpark as seasonal influenza. From hell. uh, The magic vaccine. It's not going to allow us to go completely back to normal. Because you're getting bored and you want to have fun. I'll just uh, I've just realised that there was a little clip in there of John Professor John Aya Anidis, I think he's called. Ionidis. Ionidis. Where he's, he famously said uh, the infection fatality rate is in the same ballpark as seasonal influenza. Mm-hmm. It's the most eminent epidemiologist in the world and I think probably the one of the most cited living scientists, actually. Wow. Uh, yeah, and he came out this week, I believe, with his revised infection fatality rate. Ooh, drum roll. It was 0.23%. 0.23. Yes, okay. and it's been revised down to 0.15. Wow, that's right. a big jump, isn't and that's, it? Was that the number of people who 
die after they get it or the number of people who get it? That's infection fatality rate. So people who get it and then die is yeah. 0.15. Yeah. Seasonal point influenza, I believe, varies between 0.1 and 0.2. Now, the issue is is that this is more transmissible, so you've got to bear that in mind. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I just that just sort of... Uh, I forgot that he was in the little mix, the little COVID mix. <laughs> so I thought we'd raise that. Wow, so that's quite interesting. So um, that's the fatality rate then, but that but potentially there would still be more fatalities because more people would be infected. Is that the idea? I think the, 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 the sort of basis from the beginning is that this has a higher R rate than through, 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 can through, <laughs> flu, doesn't it? It seems. So they say, but again... Right. We weren't doing a hundred thousand PCR tests for influenza a day. Exactly. You know, so junk in, junk out, I'm afraid. <laughs> we know nothing. We know absolutely fuck all. You know, yeah. we're just sort of guessing really. This is bliss. Well yeah, that's the thing. I imagine if you did test for f- flu like like this or any kind of disease, surely you're gonna find more than what you potentially expect from your modelling and stuff. It depends how you run the PCR test as well. I suppose that's it. The CDC's annual influenza figures are estimates. Mm. You know, they don't test. If you go, mm. if you get, you know, the symptoms of flu, you're pretty much diagnosed as flu. They're not going to give you a PCR test. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you say, oh, I'm not even ill, can I have an influenza test, please? Yeah. Can you imagine uh, ringing up your boss on Monday morning, tomorrow morning, saying, uh, I think I might be asymptomatic. I'm not coming in today. <laughs> How would that work? Mm, yeah. No, we don't do it. We only do it for for this condition. But, you know, whatever. Get off my soapbox now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Big Yido was on the Pandemic podcast this week. Mike... Mike Yeadon, he's a former sort of, I think he might have been, v, I'm going to get his title wrong, but I think I seem to think he was maybe VP of R&D at Pfizer. Something like it was that, sort yeah. of, it was very much involved in new medicine discovery, seems to be his, his, what his background was. And his respiratory disease, wasn't it, as well? Respiratory yeah. medicine. Yeah, new medicines for respiratory diseases, I mm. think that was his, his background. And he's been very outspoken about the... Uh, Mm. the pandemic and our sort of things and uh, he was on the pandemic podcast with monsieur gregory i think it's john john gregory oh, i should have written mm. down his name can't remember uh got an interview with him and i have some clips if you'd like to hear them oh yeah he's very clippable mike <laughs> you know and i probably could have done 20 20 clips okay. but you know how long was the interview an hour mm. Nice. Yeah. Um, he's got some issues with the vaccine rollout. I'm not anti-vax. I'm anti-unsafe medical procedures of any kind. I've worked my whole bloody life trying to work out what goes wrong in disease. How can we intervene in a way that might help without, you know, producing harms? And that—that's—that's that's really the nature of drug discovery. Trying to find out what's gone wrong. How can we fix it? Can you do that without unacceptable side effects? And what I'm seeing with these vaccines, they're quite, they're quite interesting, they're completely novel. 
And I think when you don't know what's going to happen, the precaution principle should apply. Um, and so what you do is you find the people who are most at risk from uh, the infectious disease against this, should, against this, the thing that should provide immunity, you stop there. It, 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 why would you want to start giving these vaccines to, say, I don't know, a perfectly fit 50-year-old with no prior underlying conditions? Almost no one uh, of that description has acquired the virus and died last year. More, in fact, I checked. I'm a motorcyclist. More people fell off motorbikes and died last year than people of my description caught coronavirus and died. I was at the time 60. Yeah, so he's, 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 he's not happy with the way it's been rolled out down the age groups. Mm. Okay, why are they doing it then? What's the, what's the reason we generally say? Or Cash, th- selling vaccines. Sales, sell vaccines. Mike's got a different idea. And you just can't find 25-year-old healthy women who caught the virus and died. It might be, again, there'd be fewer that fell down the stairs and died last year. Why, why would you want to vaccinate millions of people like that? And, and unfortunately, I, I think the obvious answer is to do with totalitarian control. Absolutely nothing to do with preventing an infectious disease. And if you can't see it now, if you're in the medical profession, you can't see that now. Shame on you. He's gone straight up there. Oh, shit, son. I tend to go with the more sort of human nature. It's money. Mm. Money, power converging influences but um, no he's, he's going straight for it's just to control you which is interesting oh does he go on to 5G no what's next <laughs> no no um, the blood clot thing guidance has been changed in the UK hasn't it this week I believe so is it under 30s to not have the uh, AstraZeneca and Pfizer, or is it pretty much every country in Europe now has a different recommendation oh, about what sense. age group? What does that tell you? Don't know, they don't know. Yeah, that should be alarming for people when I you have half a dozen different yeah. countries saying you've got two of the Nordics saying we're not giving it anyone, mm-hmm. <laughs> then you've got Germany saying no under 60s, you've got France saying no under 55s. You got the UK saying no under thirties. That should raise alarm bells for people. Mm-hmm. But you know, um, he does talk about the blood clots actually in the in the next clip. Just a point about this: it's simply not true that only healthy 20 to 50, 20 to fifty year old women got these blood clots. I would say it was in that group that the background rate of that disorder was so low. Physicians could not look the other way. Mm. That's mm. that's the reason. It was so low that when they got a cluster of seven dead women, previously healthy, from cerebral vein sinus thrombosis, they thought, you know, this is definitely strongly associated. And I think it's causal, and, and I think EMA thinks it's causal. Don't you think that these lesions are also occurring in other people for whom that background rate is a little higher? Yeah, the answer is yeah, it is. It's just they've not picked it out from the background because if you've got a background rate of blood clots, if it's a little higher, unless you're doing careful monitoring, you simply won't see it. So that's the reason they've spotted it. But you know, don't be stupid. Don't be dumb in public. If, if an agent has produced a thromboembolic event in a young, healthy person, you don't really think it's not occurring in an older person who's more likely to get it, do you? 
common sense that. Mm-hmm. If it's if it's causing it in young healthy people, do you really expect that it's not doing it to older unhealthy people? Yeah. It's interesting. I I had a thought the other day, one of those ones that creeps in when you're least expecting it. But uh, if you were to um, discover that this that any of these vaccines, and I'm not saying this is the case, mm. YouTube, but um, hypothetically if speaking. If these vaccines caused cancer in 15 years' time, so they triggered an event and and everyone who got a vaccine developed some kind of odd cancer in 15 years, you wouldn't notice it in, you know, giving vaccines to 65, 70, 80-year-olds. You you wouldn't notice it. You'd only notice it when in 15 years' time your 30, 20-year-olds, your children, are developing these, these conditions. Mm. Um, so that's um, I'll just throw that into the mix of people people worrying about shit well, it's, it's similar to the argument he made about infertility back when he did the James Dellingpole podcast uh, and the fact is, yeah. is that you won't pick that up for probably at least 12 months after they mm-hmm. start injecting healthy people healthy younger people who are in the age range of producing children mm-hmm. yeah yeah, but what can you do about it after you've vaccinated seventy percent of your population? Why do, do you not think that that's why the UK advice was thirty under thirties because they haven't given it to under thirties yet? No, they can't say. No, I mean, that... they've injected millions of people under fifty-five. They can't then turn out and say we're not going to give it to any more under 55. So you'd have 10 million people saying, what the fuck? You've just made me get it. That's why it's under 30s. The way that I've seen it explained... So reckless! ...is is from the current figures um, of the death rate in those age range. It's... um, You're more likely to get a blood clot from the current figures than you are to die from COVID under the age of 30. So over the age of 30, you're still more likely to die of COVID than to get die of a blood clot, basically. So that's the way I've seen it explained. And that is one side effect. There's been evidence in this weekend about another side effect, capillary leak syndrome, I think it's called. <laughs> and it's it's only a handful of people, but obviously they haven't been looking for it. So now they will start looking for it and they might find more. Yeah. And again, it's you know it's pretty much fatal if you get it. Mm-hmm. But I think that's an important point. That's only just come to me now. That is the reason why they're not recommending it for under thirties because they haven't got down to them yet. Mm. It's so fucking transparent when you stand back and look at it. That's not about your safety. They're covering their own backs. That's why they've put the put the number at thirty years old. Can't believe it. I really can't believe it. Anyway. You can. Of course you can believe it. <laughs> yeah, that's what Charlie Robinson would say. Of course you can believe it. Been doing, they do this shit all the time. It's what they do. You know. Anyway. Um, Dan, Dan Gregory, not John Gregory. Sorry. Dan Aston Gregory from the Pandemic Podcast, sticking with Yido, asks him about vaccine passports. Mm. Yeah. Do you need a vaccine passport, Mike? Uh, say, Dan, I'm a vulnerable person. Uh, and I've chosen to be vaccinated and, and all is well. 
Uh, I'm now protected according to the clinical trials. You're pretty good. Uh, I'm not interested in knowing your uh, immune status. I've no interest in it at all. So here's a person who's been vaccinated, could be vulnerable. I, I don't care who else in the room has or hasn't been vaccinated. So I, I don't need to know. I don't need a vaccine passport. I don't want to show one. I don't need to see yours. You're a younger person, fit and healthy. Perhaps you've declined, declined the vaccination so far. Um, and uh, you're not a threat to me because I'm protected. Uh, I'm, I'm not a threat to you anyway because it doesn't matter who infects you, you're not going to die. You don't need to know anyone else's immune status either. No one in this benefits from knowing anyone else's immune status. Well, that's pretty succinct, really. Yeah, probably agree with that. I, I come to the point, my sort of view is, is it's none of your fucking business. <laughs> yeah. If I've been vaccinated or not. It's got fuck all. It's between, that's between me and my daughter and no fucker else. Who do you think you are? Asking me whether what my vaccine status is for anything. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? That any... Am I fucking mad or what? <laughs> isn't that how it should be? When it comes right. to other things as well, sort of like their MMR and all the rest of it. I mean, is it going to be that then you have to add all that on? Where do you stop? Oh, with the vaccine. Right, we'll get on to this. Yeah, yeah. But first, who is pushing the vaccine passport? The only person who benefits from knowing your immune status and using it to allow you to cross or not cross a threshold or to do or not to do a tra- transaction are the people pushing it. Like people like Tony Blair, you know, Matt Hancock, Bill Gates probably. You and me do not need to question each other's immune statuses in order to interact safely now any more than we did in the past. So and you can have your country back tomorrow, folks. Just need to say no more of this bullshit. Thanks very much. Don't need any masks. No, I'm not coming for my vaccination. I'm not a vulnerable person. Uh, I'm, I'm, my friend's open the pub and I'm going in for a pint. There you are. Uh, I think we talked about it last week that it, this is going to be an industry. You know, the, these yeah. companies are vying to be mm. the these technological mm. technology companies are vying to be the purveyors of your freedom, your vaccine passport freedom, and it's just another industry, and, and, and it'll snowball. It moves under its own momentum once it gets rolling. Once people see an opportunity, That's jump on it. What can we make? Lobbyists as well. Yeah. And the companies, you know, if you if you run a cricket ground, you've you've been shut for mm-hmm. over a year. Mm-hmm. You'll do anything. You know, the the company run, that runs your cricket ground doesn't care about your fucking civil rights. Doesn't care about you losing your rights or freedoms. They just want your patronage. They want your money. And whatever will expedient that, whether it's a vaccine passport, well yeah, get it done. We need to we need to pay the bills. Yeah. So anyway, what will be the consequence of the vaccine passport? Because once the vaccine passport's up and running, it's going to be the world's first uh, common format uh, digital database. So everybody on the planet gradually will be on it with a unique digital ID. It'll be interoperable everywhere in the world, whether it's Birmingham or Bogota. You'll be told, the rule will be told, you'll have at least one editable field, which initially will be your um, your vaccination status. That's going to what you were saying, Matt. How long before they, they decide to 
you know, put different fields in MMR, TB, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> do you smoke? How much do you drink? And then, you know, your health insurance will be tailored. Your holiday, when you go on holiday, this data will be sold. And, you know, whatever you pay for your, when you, if you want to go for a cruise, well, we'll take all, to, all this into account now. It's either valid or not. And then if an algorithm is set that says, in this city, only people with a valid vaccination passport may purchase a coffee, you know, rent a hotel room, uh, even enter the border, then forever after, you see, this, this tool will, will stop a non-vaccinated person arriving and allow a vaccinated person to arrive. So you don't need these things, but they're the perfect tool for totalitarian control. I mean, it's right there to an extent it sort of mirrors the Chinese social credit score, doesn't it? You know, if you can deny people's access based on a given status. Mm-hmm. Thin end of the wedge, isn't it? Yeah, thin end, thin end of yeah. the anal swab. <laughs> See, I'd rather have the thin end. <laughs> to be fair, you know that like they were selling us, you know, the magic vaccine. Once you mm. get vaccinated, that's it. You have your freedom back. Don't go into the the vaccine being safe and not safe. I mean. It's just a, being effective and not effective. Yeah, but it's just it just moved the goalposts. <laughs> and this this is the next goalpost. Well, you've had your vaccine. Well, that's not enough. You need to get this app as well. Mm. And you need to show your QR code if you want to go mm. for a pint, or whatever. Uh, one of the main sort of um, people who are for it because they just they've just been beaten down for a year and they want their life back to normal and they'll pretty much acquiesce to anything at this point. To get back to normality, it's a perfect opportunity to roll out something like this. Is they'll say, "Well, we'll put a sunset clause in it," mm-hmm. you know. So it's just temporary, right, Mike? Don't be fooled by it being temporary. That's a lie. You don't need it ever. And if you allow it, it will destroy this liberal democracy, and there's no way back from gate to hell. <laughs> I'll say that's a no. Yeah, he's like he's spiraling, isn't he? He's serious. Mm. At one point, he says, "I'm going to do four or five more interviews, and then you'll never hear from me again." I'm not mm. sure I believe him, <laughs> but he said he says basically once this passport, if this passport system gets implemented, that's it. It's game over. The, the, this country will be dead. This, our liberal democracy will be finished. Well, yeah, this is like related to that. Do you not remember the, the the turn of the century, the national ID card? ID cards, yeah. That was um, poo pooed, wasn't it? So now then, similar sort. Sorry, I was going to say it's a similar sort of thing, but it's different times, isn't it? And the threat is different. The threat yeah. for the ID cards was terrorism. Yeah. And the threat for this is disease. It's a better. It's a better tool to use. mm Hmm than terrorism I mean at that point there were, I'm pretty sure there hadn't been an terrorist attack on the UK shores that no. at, le- that at least was linked to that, the threat at the time from yeah, the yeah. Middle East we'd had IRA you know Arndale shopping centre bombings and stuff but hmm. they were capitalising on September 11th and stuff weren't they yeah like yeah, the Patriot yeah. Act and these things yeah. are still what I've not flown for ages, but 
you know, if you go to airports in America, don't you still take your shoes off? Can you still, isn't it still restricted what fluids you can take on? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 it still is now. Yeah. yeah. But, um, Nothing's temporary. No, yeah. It changes forever and you don't get it back once you give it away. Mm. Anyway, Mike, you don't have to have the vats, do you? You can just have like a negative test or an antibody test. That's another way around it, isn't it? You don't have to have the vaccine to get this sort of certification, right? A few months down the road, they go, we're not going to allow those alternative vaccines or nothing. Mm. But, but even, even it's all we need to do. Just don't assume any goodwill on this. They've lied to you for a year. Like PCR, asymptomatic transmission, masks, lockdowns, and that bloody variant. Do not think anyone in authority or their advisors is, has got your best interests in heart because they don't. Yeah, he's, he's not impressed with the variants. And uh, he makes a very good point. Back in uh, the early days of the pandemic, some uh, scientists went and they found survivors from SARS-CoV-1. And um, I think it was done in a lab. I think they must have drawn the blood and introduced it to the new virus, the novel virus, SARS-CoV-2. And the people who'd survived SARS-CoV-1 had T-cell antibody responses. They were immune to SARS-CoV-2. Now... SARS-CoV-1 and SARS-CoV-2 are 20% different in their genetic code. The new variants are 0.3% different from the original SARS-CoV-2. He's saying it doesn't make sense. This variant stuff, the scariants, <laughs> it's about... It's, 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 if you have prior immunity from SARS-CoV-2, original strain... It will carry over. So he says. I'm not a fucking virologist, so I don't know. But it seemed to make sense. If people who, who, who were immune from 20 years ago, who were infected with SARS-CoV-1, have immunity from SARS-CoV-2, if these variants are just, you know, an order of magnitude lower in their difference from, from SARS-CoV-2, then you would think that immunity would carry over. I don't know. You know, I have a lot of faith in the human body and the immune systems that, that we've developed over mm-hmm. uh, our entire uh, evolutionary history, do they really, these politicians? The thing is, the politicians don't know anything. They're, they're advised. Mm. This is our issue. Who's who's doing the advising? Hmm... Politicians, I think. Yeah, we they call themselves scientists. Anyway, uh, just a couple of clips left. Uh, vaccinating children. Uh, can you guess no, what thanks. Mike what Mike thinks about vaccinating children? Uh, unless I'm wrong, you can go, I don't believe a single child in the UK who didn't have an underlying chronic condition has caught coronavirus and died. Right, so, and I think there are about 10 million people 10 years and down. And you can see, because government's talked about it, they've said, I think they've said, we will have completed our safety studies and proposed vaccinating children, I think it was for August, something like that. Yep. You don't need to vaccinate any of them. Mm. So, 
Honestly, why would you want to vaccinate people who don't die from this disease? Because even if it's like one in a million side effects and deaths, that would be 10, 10 children you killed for no benefit, and it won't be one in a million, will it? <laughs> one in a million. You know. Yeah, he doesn't pull any punches, does he? Uh-huh. It's true, though, isn't it? If it causes... Yeah. Uh, that kind of uh, blood clotting and stuff in kids as well. I mean, would the, uh, I assume, is the immuno response, is it, my understanding of the blood clotting is it's that overproduction of white cells or whatever, and that's what's clotting. Theory. They don't know the mechanism as yet. Right, okay. You know, they have different theories about what it could be. Is there any reason why that wouldn't occur in children? I wouldn't have thought so. Exactly, that's what I mean. So, you know, if you know. he goes back to his first point, why intervene when there's no need? Mm. There's no, there's no, there's no precedent. Yeah, we've abandoned the precautionary principle, haven't we? And uh, yeah, it, I maybe differ from him as far as the motives go, but it's almost irrelevant yeah. at this stage. Mm. Yeah. Still, I mean, you won't have to get your kids vaccinated, will you? You know, it'll be a sort of a personal choice, right? Right, Mike? <laughs> and if you think, well, they won't make children do it, if the vaccine passport system is up and running and you are the parent of a child and it pings and it says, bring little Johnny down or little Jemima down for vaccination, you'll bring them because underneath it'll have a little note that will say, or your vaccine passport will lapse. So, and you so, yeah, just unbearable levels of coercion. And, so, and they're talking about, they've done a, a doing, I think they had to pause. This is important. Pause it, but they were running a two or 300 patient study, a safety, safety study in children. 300 P patients is not a safety study, it's propaganda. Hmm. 300, it's not enough. Is it? I think that the Pfizer trials were maybe 40,000. The original trials from back early last year, I think they maybe had maybe 40,000 enrollees. And they're talking about a, cha- a, a trial with 300 kids. Just to rubber stamp this and get it into everyone's kids. It's ridiculous. It won't stop unless we make it stop. You know? But I've, I've, I've said that since day one. That the pandemic will be over as soon as we decide it's over. Mm. But, yeah. Uh, it's going to be up to the young folks, I think, to save us. Just not have it. Just not have it. To say we're not having this, this jab. Mm. I don't know. I don't offer medical advice. <laughs> Do your own research and come to your own conclusions. But, you know, look widely for information and, and make your own... It's a personal choice. It's a personal choice yeah. at the end of the day. And well, it I'll, should be. Well, yeah, but this is where we're getting into a tricky situation because we're, we're moving into the realms of coercion and having, like, essentially a two-tier health apartheid system where you have the, the great unwashed, the unclean, who can't go to the pub, and the ones who took the risk... And can. Mm-hmm. And if you don't think that that's a real possibility, 
Um, did you see what happened in St. Vincent re- uh, this weekend with the volcano? Volcano, yeah. There's a, a vol- I, knew, I knew it erupted. But... Yeah, there was a volcanic eruption on the island of St. Vincent in the Caribbean. I've got a report here from CBS, Nora MacDonald. Nearly 20,000 people are out of their homes on the Caribbean island of St. Vincent. After the first volcanic eruption there in more than 40 years, the volcano sent a thick cloud of smoke 20,000 feet into the sky, spewing ash for miles. Cruise ships are evacuating people from the island, but only those vaccinated against COVID. It's already started. Wow. Do you remember, you ever watched Titanic? <laughs> Women and children first into the lifeboats. Cranky. That mm. I didn't realise that had happened. It's happening now. Wake up, sheeple. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, poor Alex Jones. <laughs> you know what? I'm kind of retarded. <laughs> How dare you! Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Do you have some uh, sympathy for the cruise ship captain? Do you think maybe he was caught? Well, the thing is, what do you do? You're caught between the devil and the rock at a hard place. A little low. <laughs> Pretty wild, that. Yes. Um... I mean, really, what they could have done is um, put all the non-vaccinated people on one ship and all the vaccinated people on the other, maybe, if you wanted <laughs> to go down that kind of route. <laughs> Yeah, same thing, isn't it? Yeah. <coughs> well, yeah. at least he would have got off the island. Yeah. Oh God, what if one ship sank? <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, like, yeah, this would take too much planning, but, you know, you put, like, 90% vaccinated people on, 10% not, and then, you know, it'd be fine. Head immunity. Yeah. Yeah. There was a report, some modelling, was it, from UCL saying that we're going to reach herd immunity by tomorrow? <laughs> Did yeah. you see it? And every, yeah, every, everywhere has come out and say, no, this is nonsense. <laughs> well, yeah, all the government bodies and oh, for God's the sake. other modellers and stuff. No, this is completely They said themselves it was like 60%, 70% last year. No, what about the Scarians? Well... Ye no. big yidos, you know, quelled any fears around now. Let's <laughs> <laughs> just say one thing that sprung to my mind uh, as a, you know, I don't know if Ben knows, but, you know, it, it's a 20% difference in genetic code was SARS-CoV-1 to 2, and then these ones are point whatever. 3. Uh, point 3. But does it not sometimes... Is it not an issue that if it's the gene that changes that might cause, like, you know, more deaths or more transmission, that kind of thing? The vaccines focus on the on the pro, on the spike proteins. So if there's any change, like if you have a triangular spike protein that the the the, um, the antibodies recognize, and that changes to a circular spike protein then those antibodies you've made that are like triangular aren't going to recognize that mm-hmm. but it's not as i mean that's a fairly fairly mad uh variant <laughs> and like like we said before um you know 
SARS-CoV-1 and SARS-CoV-2 were significantly different. And all right, that 20% might be nowhere near the spike proteins, and that might be um, the spike proteins are triangular in both, say, and that's why you have that mm-hmm. immunity because it recognizes the, the coat that the, the, vaccine, the virus is wearing. Um, so that's the, the narrative is that's what they're scared of, the variants causing different-looking spike proteins and the vaccine's yeah. not not triggering the right um, production of antibodies to, to recognise a new a new jacket on the virus. Do you know what that argument suggests? That naturally acquired immunity is far superior than vaccine-acquired immunity by that argument. That's never been in question by me. No, but I mean by the people who are saying this. Sage. Yeah, so they... Sage have said that vaccine immunity is superior to natural immunity. Have they? I've, I'm pretty sure I've heard that. Now, is that not a... I might have to fact-check that. That <laughs> might be a cost-benefit analysis, though. They might say that vaccine-acquired immunity is always superior because you... People don't die as much. As much, yeah. You get the old <laughs> cerebral vein of thrombosis, you know, but it's only... It's only a handful of perfectly fit under 30 females, you know? Essentially, (laughs) vaccines are triggering natural immunity anyway. But it's very specific, though. From what you you were saying then, the people who've got prior immunity, T-cell immunity from a a disease that's 20% different from 20 years ago, Mm. yet we're scared of the scariants that are a little bit different. Maybe it's yeah, just I a mean, sales pitch. Maybe it's just the vaccine sales pitch. I don't know. Well, if you got if you got COVID after you've been vaccinated, then you, your natural immunity is going to pick up on any changes anyway, and and do something about it like it it normally does under normal circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, you're right. It is it is very focused on this on this spike protein. One of I assume there's there's more than one. Um, something to do with. Um, making it unable to bind with ACE receptors uh, was talked about when they were developing these things, but I don't know if that's uh, changed since last year. But I mean, it's, do- it's doing something. Seems to be. You know, it's, there's certainly not, it's certainly not a, you know, snake oil. There's, you know, there's a lot of science behind vaccines. Um, it's not so working. Doing something, but the argument isn't whether it's effective or not. It's whether it's necessary. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, if you look at what's happening in Chile, you may. I don't I know. know. Have you, are you familiar? Graph. No. In Chile, sorry. Yeah, vaccine doesn't seem to be working in Chile. Oh right. Oh. I think the maybe after the UK, maybe the most vaccinated population, or maybe about. So to tell with the UK and and their cases are spiking. There's and their deaths yeah, are Israel, Chile, UK, US now have sped up enormously in the last. Uh, now I think Chile is in the winter season, coming into their winter now. Ah, vitamin D, southern hemisphere, isn't it? Mm. Might might uh, might sort of uh, what's the word? 
it might sort of foreshadow what might happen over here once we get into September. Hmm. Booster, yeah, booster what, or not. What would happen? What would happen next? We're, we're only, like, targeting whatever percent vaccination we're going for in August now, aren't we? On the rollout map or whatever. So that's, you know, end of summer, and then you start in September, October, November into winter. What if there's a another spike again? I mean, I, I assume they would blame it on exactly what I've just spoken about, a variant that is m- madly different, and and we just don't have immunity to it. And what will be the government response? A different vaccine, an updated, upgraded vaccine for everyone, a booster. Hmm. Yeah, but, I mean, cases are going up so quick. I mean, we can't wait... Oh, sorry, a lockdown. <laughs> yeah. yeah, lockdown. So, yeah, shut down every winter, go into hibernation. <laughs> it's, it's the way of things. It's how we're meant to be. We're just going back to nature. Mm. I've got some interesting... Got... Sorry, go on. No, I was just saying I've, uh, I've kitted out my cave with uh, various animal skins ready for uh, the 2021-22 winter. <laughs> I found some uh, interesting stats this week from uh, Public Health Scotland. Oh. Now then, get a load of this. As of 28th of March 2021, there have been a total of 9,958 deaths registered where COVID-19 was mentioned on the death certificate. So... Same way that public health England has been recorded the deaths. If you've had a positive test within 28 days, it automatically gets put on the mentioned on the death certificate, and those are the COVID deaths, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of people have been putting in funny freedom of inf- information requests in to these government bodies. So someone uh, asked the question to Public Health Scotland: What is the total number of deaths for any reason within 28 days of having a COVID vaccine? Mm. from the start of the vaccine rollout to date. And the response is, up to 26th of February, 2,207 people have died within 28 days of vaccination. Please note, these deaths are due to any cause. <laughs> um, so, COVID. Yeah, well, over the same period, from the va- start of the vaccine rollout to 26th of February, there were 3,161 reported COVID deaths. So people who died within 28 days of a COVID test, 3,100. People who died within 28 days of vaccination, 2,200. Probably meaningless, but it's just it's just statistics. Yeah, you can't have one of those numbers being meaningless and not the other. They've got to to either both be meaningful or both be meaningless. Yeah. Yeah, I just thought it's interesting. There's lots of... uh, People putting in interesting freedom of information requests in. So I'll have to keep tabs on them. Do you think Most of people was, just being um, awkward fuckers. <laughs> do you think if um, if there was, and not necessarily just blood clots, but if they found some more serious side effects and people were dying from side effects and it got to the level where your chance of dying from COVID, which is what, what did we say, 0.15 or something? IFR, yeah. Percent got lower than your chance of developing a nasty side effect and dying. 
which might still be ridiculously low, like 0.16%, say. But again, we're back to the, well, either one of these is relevant, either both of these are relevant or they're not relevant at all. But it'd be hard to argue that the vaccine is favourable over taking your chances with COVID if one is less than the other. I guess the problem is is that the the risk profile for COVID-19 is so heavily age stratified. Yeah, and Van Tam was saying that last week, wasn't he? Yeah. Whereas I would imagine that risk from vaccination is pretty much flat. Hmm. Unless maybe... I'm not saying that those things are going to happen, you know. No, no, I'm just saying any medical procedure, I would imagine the risk... Of any is is fairly flat. Maybe it's higher if you have comorbidities because you, your general mortality is mortality is higher anyway. If you yeah. have you know type two diabetes or cancer or heart disease or whatever. Um. So the fact that the risk profile for COVID nineteen is so heavily skewed regarding age and comorbidities that affects my decision as an individual and in whether to get vaccinated. But if they're going to stop me going to the pub, this is where they draw a line. That's unacceptable. Yeah. In, in a free democracy. You know? But hey, maybe Keith will save us. <laughs> Keith the Star. illusion of free democracy. Keith Star. Uh, the, the Lib Dems are against it. They're against the vaccine passport on principle. Good. Good. There's only six of them, though. Exactly, yeah. They can be against anything they want, can't they? <laughs> I think there's about 60 Tory rebels at the minute. Okay. Yeah. Execute Order 66, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. People are suffering. <laughs> anyway, should we get off COVID news? We've talked about it for like a fucking hour. Yeah. yeah. It's like, is there a, is there like COVID fatigue? <laughs> Definitely, is that, yeah. Is that a thing? Darren, Darren, Darren from Grimerica has COVID fatigue. They're doing their um, their contact at the cabin currently. It's happening now. Hey. Oh, yeah, excellent. David Matheson's been posting to Instagram. They've been going around the canyons. They're probably literally stargazing now. And oh, Dave's God, going... God, I'd love to do that. Uh, describing the storming. Well, well, no, we can't leave the country, Ben. Sorry. Well, yeah, but eventually, it's against once, the law. once we have enough donations, <laughs> I'd be well up for doing that over here. Have a UK on. Yeah, yeah. If he comes over here, yeah. Go to uh, Castle Rig Stone Circle. Get Gillian down. Ryan Seven. I don't know. Well, we, well, we could do our own. <laughs> yeah, do our own. Yeah, for the UK. Yeah. Why not? Absolutely. Why? Why? Why, why wouldn't you? Let's let's sort it out. <laughs> I think we might be it might be a bit soon for us. Twenty twenty mm. something. Twenty twenty X. Darren and Graham have got about eight years head start on us when it comes to developing community. But I would love to yeah, go to theirs. People are easy to handle. I'd love to go to theirs. The Snake Bros are on it. Brothers of the Serpent podcast. If you like your yeah. ancient history, alternative history, Brothers of the Serpent is a great show. Snakes. Uh, they're there and they've got um, one of you know Wim Hof the Wim Hof breathing oh, method oh Iceman he's not there one of his acolytes is there and they're Ooh. doing Wim Hof breathing methods acolyte wow. and I'm sure lots of mushrooms and cannabis are being consumed and they're all just having a jolly unsocially distanced time 
and I would love oh, to be there. Like fun. Maybe next year we can go there. But yeah, I would I would like to set up our own eventually. That would be a, a mm. goal, wouldn't it? To to aim at. Yeah. Could definitely yeah. that's lots of crazy old shit over here. Mm. We'll have to buy the Kool-Aid now, I think. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we'll move off the COVID news. We're gonna have to talk about this. The fucking Oh my god, the big story that dropped on Friday. It's always the same, isn't it? As soon as royalty dies. Earl Simmons, best known as DMX, was a Grammy-nominated rapper. His distinctive and raspy voice propelled him to the top of music charts through the late 90s and early 2000s. He was a leader of the popular group The Rough Riders, known for their affinity of motorcycles, music, and dogs. Yeah, DMX has passed. Yeah. yeah. Shame. 50, wasn't he? 50 bells, yeah. I think he was the first rapper to get his first five albums all to number one on the bounce. Really? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that is a stat. Stato. Wow. A legit stat. That's legendary status. It is, yeah. Yeah, it's gone. Yeah, just turned 50. Oh, the, uh, the family aren't happy because... Well, well, obviously, but no, some unnamed source went to a paper and said he died of a drugs overdose. Mm. Yeah, I saw that on Reddit. I, I thought that was a bit poor taste because, as far as I'm aware, he hasn't died of a drugs overdose. Heart attack, isn't it? What it definitely wasn't, it wasn't linked at all to him having the COVID vaccine three days before he was taken ill. Oh, really? Definitely not that. And the family have come out and said, definitely don't look there. Nothing to see there. <laughs> but yeah, it's a shame, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, legend. Yeah. Legendary. Well, the other old fucker died as well this week. <laughs> DV? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was foretold. Yeah, we're in a period of national mourning now. <laughs> There's a house down on the uh, the road off my the road that you go down to get mine. They have an NHS flag in the front garden coming off the side of the house. Yeah, and I went past before and it was at half past. Yeah, the, uh, they didn't the... swap it for a union flag. They just <laughs> half masted the NHS. Yeah, <laughs> sending local... a message. <laughs> the local union jack guys put his at. Uh... Half mast. mast as well. Yeah, there's a flagpole in the back garden. It's times like this. I, I wish I had my Klingon flag flying. It's just folded up in a in a drawer. Doing I, nothing. I haven't got a pole for it. How yeah. cool would that be? Having the Klingon flag at half mast. Kapla. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Pretty cool. <laughs> <coughs> yeah, it's like five foot, five foot by three and a half. I think. Jeez. It's massive, yeah. You know, there's been uh, there's been huge complaints, hasn't there, on the BBC's coverage, wall to wall coverage. What because they've been overdoing it? Yeah, yeah. They had to open up a specific complaints page for uh, <laughs> Prince Philip. You're overdoing it, complaints, and they took it down today because it had reached capacity. <laughs> so 
people have changed since, you know, when Diana died, there was an mm-hmm. obvious public outpouring of grief. And then uh, I suppose the same for the Queen Mother. I mean, she, she lay in state. Um, loads of people visited to have a, to have a really? look, like, as they, as they do. <laughs> like Lenin. But, yeah, like Lenin, yeah. You can't do that now, obviously, because of, you know, the vids. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, a, a lot of people are just like, well, all right, he was, he was old. Um, <sighs> you know, don't do 24 hours of, you know, don't cancel the MasterChef final. <laughs> Is that what Don't happened? move EastEnders, that's what's happened, yeah. Oh, no. Uh, so, and then so, even the radio st- like yesterday, radio stations were all playing, even like Absolute 80s, which is the finest commercial radio station on the planet, um, was playing like sad 80s songs and no adverts. And it was like a, a you know, Prince Philip's died message. Wow. Don't get me wrong, it's sad. And he was a royal. And, you know, sad. there's all the protocol that goes with that. Yeah, Ben. He but. <laughs> Seven days of national mourning. It's really? Is that Saturday. what it is? There's, yeah. There's going to be, there'll be cancellations of sporting events, no doubt. Oh, never mind. What a, they cancelled some weird well, stuff. Don't like. cancel footy. <laughs> one of our, uh, one of That's our, it. one of our producers sent us a communique that one of the uh, supermarkets, national supermarket chains, was going to be playing classical music for 24 hours. Rather than the usual stuff. Rachmaninoff. All <laughs> out of copyright. The Muzak version. I've got some of his great... Williams. I've got some of his greatest hits. Oh, good. In China, in the 80s, he famously described Beijing as ghastly and told British students they would all be slitty-eyed if they stayed there much longer. And four years ago, he asked a Scottish driving instructor, how do you keep the natives off the booze long enough to pass the test? (laughs) Oh, dear. Yeah, Um, yeah, you know. Big, uh, Big fan of culling humans, Prince Philip. Culling, yeah, well, well into uh, overpopulation. Exhibit A. What do you think are the most serious issues faced by conservationists and World Wildlife Fund over the next twenty years or so? Ninety-five percent of the whole of the uh, Atlantic rainforest in Brazil has, has disappeared in the last hundred years. There is simply nowhere for these animals to live. At the basis of it all is this colossal increase in the human population. It's one of of the, of the living species of the planet, but it's it's reaching plague proportions. <laughs> plague. Oh. How many kids did he have again? Four. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, that, that raises before... Yeah. Take this. This, is, this uh, sums it up even better. What do you see as the biggest challenges in, in conservation? Yeah, the, the growing human population. Because if where we are, there's nothing else. And do you have views about what should be done about that? Can't you guess? Uh, well, it could be on a on a spectrum from mass sterilisation to no, no, uh, no. to to uh, you know greater availability of contraception. I don't know. I don't know what your views are as to what can be done about it. Well, I think I think uh, it might be described as voluntary family limitation. That's that's rich, isn't it? Coming from someone with four kids, four kids. How many grandchildren? Anyway, um, 
So we're talking again, taking a leaf out of the book out of the ghastly Chinese the plague, the plague of people, <laughs> and uh, adopting a one-child policy. Mm. Yeah, I've got yeah, another another quote from fine. here. This was from a, I think it was from a, a book that he might have re- re- written the um, foreword from. I quote: "I must confess." that I am tempted to ask for reincarnation as a particularly deadly virus, but that is perhaps going too far. Hates us all. It's a common theme. Bill Gates is the same. I know. We've been talking about it for decades. Too many people. But who's going to buy Microsoft Windows? Microsoft. Talk about what a name for your company. Microsoft. Penis. Yeah, yeah. Get a grip, Bill. <laughs> Microsoft sums him up in a word, doesn't it? <laughs> Massive hard windows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no. You know, I, I wasn't. I didn't really uh, have any emotional reaction to hearing that Prince Philip was dead. Uh, I thought think... he was one of the best Doctor Who's, so, you know, it'll be missed. I just oh, couldn't help thinking whether or not the Queen cried. Oh, surely. Yeah, I think she would have done. I, would have I think behind emotion. closed doors, she's human. Do reptiles cry? <laughs> they taste the air. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe she yeah. ate his carcass. Do reptiles cry? I don't think they cry. Yeah. Crocodile you know, tears. There you go. There's your answer. Well, no, you need, you need. Uh, I'm pre- I would. I'm don't know anything about biology, <laughs> but I would assume that only mammals cry. Because you need nipples. <laughs> you know, let's talk about the reptile. The reptile brain, the animal brain. I don't think. Um, I think you require empathy to cry. I don't believe reptiles have empathy. Well, I was just oh, going to say, I don't mean, think other, yeah, other species don't cry, do they? So, so dogs human. Dogs cry. Yeah, if you, if you get sand in your eye. <laughs> no, I mean, I think dogs have empathy. I think. Possibly. They have emotions. <laughs> they dream. Explain to me why dogs dream. Same reason that mice dream. Explain to me why mice dream. Well, the the current theory around dreams is sort of like skill acquisition, isn't it? So you replay stuff um, that you've learned throughout the day at a higher speed. So the, the study I've sort of read, read is about mice and sort of extrapolated to humans in that they put mice in a maze or rats um, and they sort of monitored the brain activity whilst they were doing that and put a little electrode in the brain. And then um, basically what they, what they kind of found from that was when the mouse had gone through the maze and when then it slept subsequently, it was going through the maze in its brain. So the theory is, is that when you sleep, you overlay your neurons and you lay down that sort of knowledge, essentially. So, you know, when you're, um, when Zeus has had his penis tickled in the day by you, um, that's what he's thinking about. He's thinking what he did around that time in order to get his penis fondled by you. Again. And he's thinking, right, okay, and that's what I can do again in the, the following day. 
You you met Zeus now? He's lovely, isn't he? Do you like him? I think he's a very gentle doggy. I think you've done very well there. He weren't very sure, placid. You weren't sure about that plot Labrador. Well, you told again, him off. He went straight for the penis, didn't he? The, the lab. Oh in god! A, in a more vigorous way. Right, ben, this isn't the la- Matt's met Zeus twice now, but last weekend right. when we went to the park, Zeus was stood up, and this little uh, pug came <laughs> along, and essentially used Zeus like a Trojan horse. He went under his legs. He was stood up <laughs> under his legs, licking his dick. Yeah. <laughs> it was like using him as a, I don't know, like an exoskeleton. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. But uh, it's a dog's life. He said he's, well, he, he seems a little bit, I don't know. I think he's still getting used to it. Sketch. He's still, <laughs> still getting used to the environment because he, he still had his, his tail between his legs, didn't he? Yeah, so I think he's a bit nervy around yeah. other dogs. Yeah. Um, especially once that lucky stick. <laughs> yeah. He just likes it to be stroked by a human. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's a size thing, because he didn't bother with the pug, but the Labrador, he told him off. And, well, he didn't yeah. really make a sound. He just sort of... He doesn't he make went, sound. He just leaps with his enormous <laughs> barrel frame. <laughs> she took him to the vets, <laughs> to, uh, just to get him checked over. And uh, his bloody is heavier than what they said. Fuck. Yeah. Got him weighed while she was there. How much is he up to now? 48 and a half. 48, just shy of 48, about 105 pounds. Damn. So uh, I don't know. I think he might have some Rottweiler in him. Right, okay. Because they they tend to be about 50 pounds. Right. You're getting checked, can't you? Yeah, well, I, I've looked into this on Amazon. For about 60 or 70 pound, you can have a doggy DNA test. <laughs> I think that's worth it. Get your percentages. Um, just go to theomishinquisition.com, you find the PayPal button, and send over 60 pounds, Amish Ben, Yeah. and I will get that done yep. for you. Zeus <laughs> test. Yeah, you just take a swab of the cheek. The mouth cheek. <laughs> not, <laughs> not, not the Chinese one. Would <laughs> he let you in his mouth? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've inspected his teeth. The vet was very impressed with his pearly whites. Oh, good. Yeah, uh-huh. the vet, very good teeth, which is important. Good. Yeah, we can't leave anything, though, on the <laughs> side. We uh, What were we doing? Oh, me and the missus had a treat. We went to Burger King. The new Burger King, because the kids were at at Nana and Grandpa's. So we went to Burger King, and when we came home, um, a full pack of dentist sticks had been taken off the side and eaten. Ten. That's why he's got nice teeth. (laughs) (laughs) We we have butter. We keep butter in a Tupperware container. That had been taken off the top of the microwave and was on the couch in the lounge. Do you want to put it in the fridge? No, because you can't spread it. Too cold. Right, you. see, you don't refrigerate your butter. No. No, we, yeah, if, we're, if we're operating a butter system, it has to be left on the counter. It doesn't like... It's not like some genetically modified, horrible substance that you might put on your crumpets. Vitalite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
it just stays as a lump of butter for days and days oh, and days. Yeah. You just use it. Yeah. No, yeah, I would recommend everyone get some butter. Uh, but the dog uh, can will eat, will eat a pack of butter if he gets <laughs> teeth into it. Ugh, yeah, so it's a good excuse to keep the kitchen tidy. Can't leave anything on the side. What are we doing? Are we doing? Are we, are we gone? Are we good? Yeah, it's just another, another three-hour podcast. More on your list. 20 past oh. 10. Or is it half past 10? This thing on this tablet's wrong, isn't it? You keep telling me. Best. Right. Go to the gym tomorrow. I'll tell you how many people are wearing masks. Are you the going next to, time. Are you, you going have to, to wear it all the time? I don't think so. Is it just I'll between equipment? I don't know. I've not been to a gym for two years-ish. I, I bet I, you Sorry. I've been spending some time in the hospital this week and I've been seeing doctors who don't wear masks. Oh, oh yeah. They walk, walk down the corridor with the mask on and then go into the office with the uh, staff nurse and the administrator and the nurse. Mask down. Let's have a chat. Sit on this desk next to you. Yeah. It's so. almost as, as though they know that it's bullshit. Hmm. Um, yeah, you, yeah. Officially, you're not supposed to do that. No. Never mind. I went to a petrol station without one the other day. I forgot and just thought, I'll go in. If anyone asks me, I'll just say... Style it out. Yeah, pull your beard up. (laughs) (laughs) Have you not seen there's a picture of a person going around like that? It's probably more effective. I just need an an elastic band, I think. It's like, how many layers is this? Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Weave, yeah, new studio. Uh, All right, should we go then? <laughs> yeah, yes. Jared Murphy next week talking about ancient civilizations, lost civilizations, Atlantis. Mm. Back into your era, man. Fucking loving it. Wakanda forever. Yeah, praise Jabalon. Still alive. And of course, you're getting bored and you want to have fun. But the thing is, what do you do? You caught between the devil and the rock and a half blade. Oh, oh. I will won't like a judgment day and terminating mode like Just when I came to the United States Senate 120 years ago. I'm a blind man. How dare you?